Hello, everyone, and welcome to our penultimate episode 49 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. It's not the penultimate, because we're doing two more after the 50. Well, it's the penultimate numbered episode. Uh, that works. I'm Cody. <laughs> you totally ruined the intro. Yeah, go with it. Screw the flow it. of the intro has been totally interrupted. But anyways, we're here again to tell you on our bi-weekly journey about all of the times, all of the 49 times in history where we effed up. And typically, I would say at this point, what are we talking about this week, Cody? But this time, you get to say it to me. What are we talking about this week, Cody? <laughs> Funny. Um, you don't need to tell me. Yeah. Uh so this this week, we're actually going to flip it up a little bit, and I am actually driving the episode, and I am imparting upon Cody knowledge of which he has no, uh, he has no knowledge of, I guess. He's I'm looking a- forward to learning about one of the two things I don't know about. <laughs> the Number one, bugs. You don't know anything about bugs. Number two- I know they should all be killed. The outside. You don't know anything about the outside. I know not to go near it. The outside? Yes. <laughs> well, this this falls into category two. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. Mm. Um, so what what do you know about mountain climbing? Um, I know that it is dangerous, or can, can be. I know there's different uh, difficulties of mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, something like, you know, Matterhorn is relatively not easy but accomplishable by physically challenged people such as myself mm-hmm. uh whereas something like everest or k2 kilimanjaro like are require much more skill mm-hmm. um i know that mountain climbing you go up and then you go down mm-hmm. so yeah but i i, I i'm I have like a passing interest in mountaineering, like just kind of the general, uh, I would say like, not that I, I know general history of it, like, you know, Matterhorn was kind of the, one of the first ones to really be, um, kind, it kind of like, uh, uh, people would go up there just as an achievement. Um, I, I know that Everest, you know, Sarah Hillary, Tinsley Norgay, first two confirmed, to be at the top of Everest. I know that's some some dispute over that, whether somebody may have gotten there before them. Um, I know if you die, your body just... just you're, you're getting left behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I know they're still finding bodies from decades ago. Um, so, I... Um, yeah. Uh, it's, I, I, know, I know it's extremely dangerous. But I know it's quite a personal accomplishment if you manage to do it yeah definitely and at one point in time you know the first people to ever summit mount everest didn't actually happen until the 50s which we'll discuss just pillory and norgay because we i'm going to go in the same kind of order that Mm. you would go in if you were doing the episode so the first we're going to get into some background so i've taught you well (laughs) Uh, Mount Everest is, uh, I don't know if you know this part of it, but it was actually named after the former Surveyor General of India, mm-hmm. who was named George Everest. It's actually pronounced Everest, but we anglicized it or American sized it into Everest. So it's actually George Everest. 
and it's the world's highest mountain. Do you know how tall it is? Uh, isn't it like 28,000 feet, something like that? The highest peak of that mountain is in Nepal, and it's 29,031.7 feet. Eh, close enough. I, I, I would have won the showcase showdown. I didn't mm-hmm. go over. And the Mount Everest is actually shared between Nepal and Tibet. There's a side of each on on either side of that country's border. The Tibetan name of the mountain is actually Chomolungma. It means mother goddess or mother goddess of the world. And that was actually first recorded on a Kangchi atlas. Emperor Kangchi wanted an atlas made of that mountain range, of the Himalayas. And so Chomolungma, that was the first time it was ever recorded. Interesting. Yeah. Um. The first ever outside expedition to actually explore the mountain was in 1921, and that was the outside expedition, not Nepalese or Tibetan expedition on the mountain. But the first ever outside expedition was in 1921, and was financed by the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society. And during their five-month climbing expedition, they were on that mountain for five whole months, they explored the North Col, which then which when they got there, they said, okay, this actually is going to give us a plausible route to the summit. So I'm going to show you a kind of topographic map. It's not the best topograph ever, but it's going to give you kind of an idea of what we're looking at when we talk about North Col. So here is Mount Everest itself, Mount Mm -hmm. Everest proper. And then this is the North Col. So this area here, when they surveyed that part, they thought, okay, if we if we can get here, then we have a clear path to the summit, and that's what we're going to use. Yeah, because I, I know that it's it's not a simple matter of oh, just go straight up the mountain. It's you know you have to find the best path, right? Uh, especially because like some of those mountains like are almost like cliff faces. Like you're yes. not exactly going to be able to scale them well, and you have to like at least find an area flat enough to at least set up a camp for the night. Mm-hmm. So, And at this point in time, there weren't any established camps. Um, in in time afterwards, there will be established camps. Mm-hmm. There's actually four established camps that you can get to. There's base camp one, all the way two, three, and four. Four is the highest. Um, at this point in time, though, once they saw the North Call, they were like, cool, we're going to get there using this pathway. And there's actually on here on the same topograph, on the same topograph, there's also the South Coal mm. and the West Cume, which we're going to talk about later. Okay. So just wanted to point those out. And then this is Lhotse. That's another one of okay. the one of the uh, yeah. highest peaks in the world. So for us, the North Coal is coming at Everest from the Tibetan side, and the right. South Coal is coming at it from the Nepalese side. That's right. Okay. And the West Cume runs parallel to the Nepalese border. Okay. In Tibet, though. So in 1922, General Charles Granville Bruce and climbing leader Lieutenant Colonel Edward Lyle Strutt led a group for a full-scale summit attempt. And they were actually the first humans to ever climb above 26,000 feet on a mountain. And a day later, George Finch and Jeffrey Bruce, two other men, a part of this climbing group, actually got to 27,300 feet with supplemental oxygen. And they were the first mountaineers to sleep with oxygen at camp on this mountain. So it was it was like a, a new day. A new day is mm. dawning. They're like, oh, my God, we can, you know, because at, at these also keep in mind at these uh, altitudes, the amount of oxygen that you're able to absorb from the air is very minimal. It's like not enough. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so I know, I know, yeah, because I know there's like an area there called like literally called the death zone. Yeah, we're gonna talk yeah. about that. <clears throat> yeah, so that's anything over eight thousand meters is the death zone. This reminds me kind of like um, when the like attempts were like being made to reach the South Pole. Mm-hmm. It's like it was like the measurement kept being like farthest south like that was the goal but like chipping away like a little bit like okay here's we're a few hundred feet closer further south next expedition a few hundred feet closer a few hundred feet closer a few hundred feet closer until he finally till you know the expedition finally reached that's, that's what this is kind of reminding me of yeah it's it like was... getting up like a little bit more next expedition a little bit more a little bit more so. yeah so the first expedition that 1921 they spent five months out there. They were really just scoping it out. They mm. were trying to figure out what's going to be the best way to attack this mountain. And also keep in mind that there's not a lot of time during the year when it's actually good to climb. There's the spring season, which is what we're going to talk about. And then there's also the fall season. And so they're they're trying to figure out, okay, what's what's our best route to be able to get to the summit of this the path of least resistance, one where we don't have to scale, you know, sheer rock faces. But also, when are we going to be able to do this? So in 22, 1922, they tried to do it. They didn't quite get there, but they're at 27,300 feet. That's pretty high. That's only, you know, 1,700 feet below the, the summit. In 1924, there was another attempt, and this may have actually been the first summit from people outside of Nepal or Tibet. George Mallory and Andrew Irvine, they had an expedition. They may have summited, but there's no proof that Mm. they actually summited because they died. Uh, George Mallory's body was found, uh, but there's no proof that they ever summited. Andrew Irvine's body was never found. Yeah, and I've heard, I I tangentially just kind of like very limited knowledge of that specifically, and I'm like, I, I, I thought I read that the other guy who's still missing may have had a camera with him. Yeah, it's all kind of like uh, so. It's like if apocryphal. Like they ever so. find his body? Yeah, maybe. potentially. <laughs> I mean, well, it's... I mean, the camera's probably ruined at this point. It's a lot of snow. It's a hundred years worth of snow. Yeah, but it may have preserved it. Uh, potentially. Yeah, well, you never know. Yeah, and that's to say, like, I mean, we have no real way of knowing. But I mean. For I mean, this mountain has obviously existed for a very long time, right? Long before recorded history, right? There may have been plenty of people beforehand who did summit it, like you know, especially local uh, Tibetans and Nepalese who were really adapted to the climate, right? May have done it, but if they did, we don't know. Yeah. So, and, and nobody has ever thought to ask. I mean, we don't have recorded as as detailed recorded history. Mm-hmm. That we can access for both Nepal and Tibet for us to be able to research something like that. But also they considered, at least the Tibetan side, considered that mountain to be holy and um, like spiritual. Mm -hmm. So climbing it would have been not a thing that they were interested in. That's true. They're more interested in admiring it. Yeah. So I know, yeah, I know there's like, and there's several other mountains there in that range that are considered sacred that are off limits for that reason. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... During a subsequent, so that happened in 1924, where Mallory and Irvine were lost. Mallory and Irvine died. Mm. Mallory's body was found. But during a subsequent expedition in 1935, they determined that a possible summit could be made using the Western Cume. So the Western Cume is what runs parallel to Nepal here. Mm-hmm. And Cume is spelled C W M, 
It's a Welsh word. It means valley. So this is the Western Valley. So there are peaks here. There's a ridge here. And this is a valley. So during that 1935 uh, expedition, they were like, okay, let's use this valley. Why not just try and go Mm. through that way? Um, But in order to do that, they'd have to come in on the Nepal side of the mountain in order to get to that Western Cume. That wasn't possible until Nepal actually opened its borders to foreigners in 1950. So until 1950, it was just kind of a pipe dream. They were like, we could probably get to it from there, but we can't actually get there from here. So that's 1950. In comes Sir Edmund Hillary. And he actually had relatively little large mountain climbing experience. Um, He, but... He was persistent and he worked very slowly. And when he got to and using the Western Cume, he found it was possible to make to make it to the South Col from the Western Cume. The South Col is that kind of ridge and ascend to the top. So in 1953, the new Joint Himalayan Committee, which was a successor to the Royal Geographical Society, funded the first ever successful summit of Everest. And that occurred on the 29th of May in 1953. It was Tenzing Norgay, a very seasoned Sherpa, and Edmund Hillary. They reached the summit with closed-circuit oxygen via the South Coal, and the news of which was actually possibly the last major news item to be delivered by runner. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess the infrastructure probably just wasn't there. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> there, cool. was a, um, there was a Times uh, journalist in Tibet and so the the ready to receive the news I, I, either yeah. way success or failure right yeah. there's probably like a lot of eyes on this yeah so the runner actually delivered it to the journalist in tibet and it was actually delivered to london on the morning of queen elizabeth ii's coronation which would have been june the 2nd 1953 <laughs> yeah so it probably got it probably got pushed to like oh yes. like page six <laughs> yeah it definitely did <laughs> oh that, that's kind of unfortunate yeah uh just want to show you a picture this is sir edmund hillary he's from, he's... well he's from new zealand isn't he mm-hmm. yeah okay that's what i thought he's very toothy yeah very very tall yeah and this is a picture of tenzing norgay and edmund hillary on yeah. everest hmm. um you can tell they don't have a lot of equipment <laughs> no um so nowhere near like what we would have today no definitely not um climbing the mountain after that after nepal opened its borders it basically made it a status symbol it launched climbing into everest as a status symbol and many folks attempted the climb having little to no climbing experience and relying heavily on sherpas and paid guides and in the 1980s for the low price of between thirty five thousand and sixty five thousand dollars per person Companies would guarantee your summit in return. So 1953, we have our first successful outside summit. And by the 80s, for thirty-five dollars to $65,000, you can go and do it yourself. So it makes it look like it, that is something where it's it, 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 the, the commercialization of it. I feel like it just makes it less special. Funny. I mean, it's still don't mean don't care. It's still an achievement to climb the highest mountain in the world 
Funny you but should say it, that. It's just... I because mean, I, we're actually going to talk about that. Oh, God. This is going to be a corporate villain story, isn't it? No, no, actually. No. Um, so, I, I love hating on corporations. <laughs> no, it's not It's not hating on corporations, but um, one of the, the key players in our story today is actually um, reporting on that very thing about the commercialization of Everest. So we're going to fast forward to May of 1996, I was six years old, so I had no idea about what I was, was going also on six here. Years old. <laughs> so was... actually, I wasn't yet six. I was going to be six. Well, May '96. Yeah, I would have been. I would just turn six the yeah. previous month. 1996, the most important year in my life, because that is the year that I was graced with the knowledge of Star Wars. Sure. Okay. A holy year. <laughs> well, it was a very important uh, year for the folks that are going to be in this story as well. Mm. So I just want to say, keep in mind that although we're talking about the kind of exploitation of Everest as, as a status symbol, summoning Mount Everest is not easy by any means. It often requires a lot of time, like months and months, you know, get your visa approved to go to Nepal or Tibet, spend a lot of money for permitting and a guide, and a lot of time to wait because it's not always feasible for you to summit on the day that you plan. And that's because the weather shifts very quickly up that high. It's very, very cold. And also the sun. Yeah, because there's not as much atmosphere protecting you from the sun's rays. Well, not only atmosphere, it doesn't get very cloudy often. So the higher you go up, you have both less protection from atmosphere, but you also have a lot less sunshade. And, so, I mean, glare from the snow as yes. well. Yeah, so snow blindness is yeah. a very real possibility. It's also not as simple as walking a well-paved trail. Hmm. There are parts of the mountain, especially between camps, that are very well-trodden and easy to get to, um, like in between base camp and camp two and camp three and camp four. It's much easier because you have Sherpas who are actually employed specifically to work between those camps and transfer supplies. So there's a very well-oiled machine of of people going in between those camps. Mm-hmm. But getting to the summit is a different story. There's also avalanches that can happen. It's covered in snow, obviously. Uh, sudden storms, which we're going to talk about. Ice crevasses, which we're also going to talk about, that open and can, can move 30 to 40 feet. Not the dreaded ice crevasse. Um, also at that altitude, because you're not able, your, um, your lungs aren't able to transfer as much oxygen to your blood, your thinking can become clouded. So we're going to talk about some of a little bit of each of those things. My thinking is already clouded. I couldn't imagine it being more clouded. We'll, we'll talk about it. So there were actually four separate climbing expeditions that were happening. Actually, technically five. There are two main ones that we're going to talk about today. So there are two noted expedition groups that we're going to be talking about today. There was also a Taiwanese group, an Indo-Tibetan border police group. And on the other side, on the Nepalese side of the mountain, there was an IMAX crew filming a movie called Everest, which we'll talk a little bit about on this one as well. I think I I saw that movie. Yeah, the Air Force Museum, the the IMAX theater there. Yes, you definitely did. Yes. Yeah. The two large expedition groups that we're going to be talking about were sending at the same time. There's Adventure Consultants, which was a group that consisted of 19 people. 
It was led by guide Rob Hall, included three guides, eight clients, including John Krakauer, who we'll also talk about a little bit here in a second, and eight Sherpas. Those were the Sherpas that were specifically hired to help their group, not the ones who are going in between camps. So I will show you a picture of Adventure Consultants. So the important guys, a lot of that guy's pants. <laughs> yeah, they're that's very, actually Rob Hall. They are very like just the old guys look is very nineties. So uh, just of special note, um, Beck Weathers, who is here, mm. um, we'll be talking about him again. Doug Hansen, John Krakauer. This is our journalist friend who we'll be mm. talking about here in just a second. Andy Harris. And Rob Hall, and also uh, Yasuko Namba. We'll talk about each of them in more depth. But this is the Adventure Consultants Group. Yep. So I mentioned John Krakauer because he was actually the uh, journalist who was there. He was actually reporting f- on the commercialization of Everest for Outdoor Magazine. Hmm. Sorry, John Krakauer was reporting for Outside Magazine. Also, I want to point out that. For Sherpas, being that high up for extended periods of time is extremely dangerous. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, Not only can you not get enough oxygen for your brain to be able to think as well most, most of the time when you're up that high, you also could have cerebral or pulmonary edema pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And these are all very, very, very common. I mean, Sherpas come down with this sort of stuff a lot. Pneumonia, having to go to the hospital for a cerebral or pul- pulmonary edema. But often they will have that happen to them. And if they don't die, they'll go back and work on the mountain again. It is very lucrative for them to be there. So just wanted to point that out. It's extremely dangerous to remain up at that altitude yeah. for long periods of time. And it's probably something that not necessarily compounds over repeated trips, but it's it's kind of like rolling the dice. Eventually, you're going to get a bad roll. Yeah. So. And the older you get, the more yeah. susceptible you become to that. Yeah. Okay. So, with the exception of Yusuko Namba, that was the woman I pointed out, who was 41 and at the time was the oldest woman to ever summit Everest. That's impressive. None of the other clients on on this trip had ever reached a summit of over 8,000 meters. 8,000 meters is the death zone. So none of the other people... In uh, in meters, how tall is Everest? uh, So that 8,000 meters would be 26,246 feet, and Everest is um, 27... Okay. T- sorry, 29,031 feet. So Okay. So they may have summited other mountains before, but nothing on this scale. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yep. Or nothing that would that would require uh the 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 more extensive preparations that you need to survive in a mountain that literally has a death zone. I wouldn't say that all of them we're like that because we're just talking about the clients. The mm. guides were seasoned. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I mean. The yeah, the people forking out the money for this. Yeah, they they at least had never had over eight thousand feet experience. Mm. So, um, and then, um, well, this picture of the adventure, um, the adventure consultants is not as good, but I'll point out a couple of people on here. Mm. Um, so this was let sorry. 
the Mountain Madness group. This was led by Scott Fisher. And Scott Fisher is here. Okay. This is Anatoly Bokreev. We'll be talking about him later. And uh, there were also eight clients and eight Sherpas on this this group. So it was it was actually the same kind of consistency. Mm-hmm. Three guides, eight clients, eight Sherpas. Um, now, this was a much more seasoned group. However, this was Scott Fisher's first time ever leading an expedition to, to Summit Everest. Um, also, just want to point out, most most deaths actually occur coming down from the summit of Everest, not going up. It is very, it, it, and like the ratio is is not like fifty one forty nine. It's like a lot more people die coming down than going up. Why is that? So there's a couple of different theories. One of them is that people persist as they're going to the the top. They're going to keep going no matter what, especially when they see that the end is is near. And then get sloppy on the way down. Or in the case of our events that we're going to be talking about today, they will stay too long or take too long to get to the summit and get trapped in poor weather conditions on the Mm. way down. So there's a couple of different reasons why. Also, coming down from a mountain that's very steep poses its own set of of, uh, dangers. Maybe... I want to say more at risk for falling, but it, it seems like it'd be easier to f- fall a further distance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um, slipping, sliding. It, yeah. Because when you're climbing up, you have, um, so they have these guide ropes and mm-hmm. we'll actually talk about that a little bit later, but they have these guide ropes that you climb onto. So when you're going up the very steep portions, mm. you actually have this thing. It's, it's similar to a gree I'm not sure if that's actually I, what it's I, called. I think I've seen those in action before. Yeah, yeah. but they slide up the rope and then they yeah. they hold. So that way you don't slide back down. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, it sounds like timing is going to be the issue here. Yes. Okay. So at the same time, I mentioned this already a little bit before, but David Brashear's team um, com- comprised of himself and Ed Vesters. Ed Vesters, also a very famous um, Everest climber. They're filming for the IMAX film titled Everest, which released in 1998. Mm. So that's also happening happening simultaneously. So there's a lot of people messing around on this mountain. And um, I also want to talk about the Kumbu Icefall. So they're, they're, the Kumbu Icefall is kind of a famous part of Everest because 19 people have died in the Kumbu Icefall. There are th- these huge cre- crevasses that can move between 30 and 40 feet a day. And I'll show you a picture of that. Okay. This is the Kumbu Icefall. So it's not, mm. um, it's it's definitely not stable for no. walking and this moves a lot during the course of the day. So crevices can open in between these big pieces of glacier ice yeah. and people can fall in. There are some parts of it that are a little bit more stable and they actually will lash together aluminum ladders to walk across. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've definitely seen yeah. like that, uh, pictures of that before. And I'm not just cool. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, uh, nope, not yeah. doing that. <laughs> so at this point in time, May the 10th, which is what we're talking we're talking about today, there are 38 people between two separate groups that are attempting to go from Camp 4 to the summit of Mount Everest by 2 p.m. 
So just keep in mind, 2 p.m. Plus is... two filmmakers. No, no, they're on the other side okay, of the mountain. Okay, okay. So they're not with the, these guys at all. Okay. So, so both these expeditions are at the same camp at the same time, leaving at the same time. Yes. And they all want to go to the summit by 2 p.m. Hmm. And I also want to stress... This is their drop dead time. If they don't get to the summit by 2 p.m., the intention is that they will stop and go back to camp four and that's it. They don't get a second chance. They don't get to just kind of dally around. That's what's supposed to happen. If they don't get there by 2 p.m., they turn around and come home. I can kind of maybe see where this is heading. Yeah. Especially like... Well, like uh, we've polluted like the commercialization of it. You have people paying tens of thousands of dollars to summit Mount Everest, and by golly, spend that much money. I'm gonna summit Mount Everest. I don't care what time of day it is, and they're not gonna really understand. Well, it's something like that. Okay. So I also want to point out this person right here. This is this is Sandy Pittman. The purple sweater. Yeah the the woman there with the sunglasses. Well, I think they all have sunglasses. Is it the, the, the one in the purple or the pink? Okay, okay. purple. Yeah. Okay. Your yeah. finger was like, move, kept moving between the pink and the purple. Well, so. that other person has a beard. So, oh, so <laughs> Sandy Pittman, super rich and famous, uh, go was like flitting in between big outdoor experiences like this. She actually dragged an entire satellite phone system with her to Camp 4. Which seems really weird, but it ended up being a great idea. And I'll get to why. But Sandy Pittman might actually be our effort upper of this episode. I'll let you decide when we get to the end. Oh, this is one where I get to pick? Yeah. Oh, There okay. are uh, okay. three three options. Which one is the richest? <laughs> I'm going to pick that one. Well, I'll let you. Let me get to Eat the, the end. Eat the rich. Let me get to the end and then we'll Power we'll of the people. Eviscerate the proletariat. Okay. So, what the Sherpas were supposed to do that day is they were supposed to leave several hours earlier mm. and go and lay the... They're basically what what's called fixing the ropes. So, they were going to put guide ropes from Camp 4 through areas that are a little bit more treacherous. They were going to fix ropes to the mountain so that it was going to create a very um, seamless transition. So, as these 38 people are trying to summit... They would gra- grab onto these ropes and use those to both help them up the mountain, but also guide them up the mountain. But the Sherpas didn't fix the ropes. The Sherpa from Adventure Consultants went to meet a Sherpa from Mountain Madness to fix these ropes. The Adventure Consultant Sherpa got there and there was nobody else there. And he didn't want to do it alone because it's dangerous yeah, to do yeah, that alone un- without helping. Yeah. The Mountain Madness Sherpa had not been able to come because of Sandy Pittman. She had, quote unquote, climbed several other mountains, but other people who were there on their expedition had described her as being dragged up the mountain. The Sherpa that was assisting her was dragging her up the mountain, and so he couldn't go to fix these ropes. And like dragging her, like... Like physically, like having to do the work of getting her up the mountain. Oh my god. So If you can't do it, don't do it. So, this, because the Sherpas weren't able to fix these ropes. She's in the lead so far. (laughs) Because these Sherpas weren't able to fix the ropes, it slowed down their party by hours. Because it takes a long time to fix these ropes, to do it safely. 
So there's this bottleneck at the where mm. they need to fix these ropes. I know. So, I know that. I know that's been a pr- big problem lately. Is bottlenecks on Everest? Yeah. So there can only be one person ascending these ropes at a time. Did you say what I think you said? There can be only one. I think you did. There's only one person that can ascend the ropes at any given time. And and while that person's ascending, nobody can descend. Mm. It's a one-person system. One-way road. Yes. So this slowed, the, this slowed the party down by several hours. And the groups summited. Not all of the people. Some of them turned around. Some of them weren't feeling good, so they turned back to Camp 4. So... They didn't end up leaving the summit. Keep in mind, their drop-dead time was 2 p.m. Some of them didn't end up leaving the summit until about 3 p.m. And... Well, then why... Why were they allowed to leave at all, then? So, well, you have to leave. You can't stay on the summit. Well, no... Okay, so like 2 p.m., like you have to reach the summit by 2 p.m. Yeah, like I'm you ha- thinking you have to leave Camp 4 by 2 p.m. No, sorry. Okay, you, okay. Not only do you have to summit by 2 p.m., you have to be on your way back by, by 2, 2 p.m. PM. Oh, that was their okay, drop-dead okay. so, return time. Okay, okay. So they probably left like at a, you know, their normal, what they were, their originally planned departure time. It just took them longer to get there, and they got there. Okay, I, yeah. I, I see now. I see. So they went well past their 2 p.m. leave time. Hmm. And they knew that there was going to be bad weather. And it started to look really bad. And they're thinking... Is nobody, like, keeping a track of what time it is? Like, if they're not there at 2 p.m., they'd be like, all right, we got to turn back. So there's a couple of different theories about that, which we'll get to a little bit later. Okay. Um, Nothing was ever said, like, written in stone. But there's a couple of theories about why both Scott Scott Fisher and Rob Hall, two seasoned Everest, you know, mountaineers why they would have gone past what they said. But I'm going to keep going with the story, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So that's several, several hours behind. And there's bad weather that's incoming. They can't stay at the summit. People are already starting to feel bad from being at the summit for too long. So once they began to descend from Camp 4, there were already some people that had gone quite a bit ahead. Anatoly Bolkriev is one of them. He had gone kind of, he was already back at Camp 4 by the time there are still people on the top of Everest. So he he had gone way far ahead, one of the guides from um, Mountain Madness. Once they began to descend, once the the main party began to, to send back to Camp 4, there was a blizzard that began. And it, it had whiteout conditions in just a couple of minutes. They said there are differing accounts of this, but between 4 and 5 p.m. is when the blizzard set in. So they're in a very, very, very bad spot because not only is it getting cold, there's ice hitting their face at 70 miles an hour. There's snow. They can't see anything. It's burying those guide ropes. So they can't, they're not permanently attached to them as they go up Everest. Mm. The ropes are only in certain areas. So these ropes are getting buried and they can't see Uh, where they're at. So I'm going to give you a summary of the events that followed because it's all over the place and it would be impossible for me in an hour long episode to be able to tell you all of the intricacies without you actually just reading the book. So I'm going to give you an overview. So. Rob Hall, who was the adventure consultant lead, he had stayed with his client, Doug Hansen, 
at the summit of Everest because he had run out of supplementary oxygen when he was ascending. So Rob Hall had a radio and he called Andrew Harris and said, hey, I need some help because Doug Hansen is up here. He's not feeling good. He's out of supplementary oxygen. We need to get him down. So Andrew Harris ventured out alone from the South Summit near Camp 4 towards Rob Hall with supplementary oxygen. So Rob Hall and Doug Hansen are still at the summit and Andrew Harris is on his way. The next morning is the next time that they heard from Rob Hall. He, so, so what time did the guy leave again, Andrew Harris? What time it, did he leave for this? It was for, in the evening. In the evening? Yeah. Okay, so like so, quite some time later, yes. several hours. So the next morning, Rob Hall radios and says, Hansen is gone. He just says, gone. And Harris was missing. At 9 a.m., he asked to be patched through satellite phone to his pregnant wife, where he said his goodbyes, and then he died. His his wife uh, knew the risks, and this guy, like, this was his whole jo- job, his whole life. But he was stuck. Um, he wasn't able to breathe supplementary oxygen for a while because his um, oxygen regulator had frozen. He got it fixed, but his hands, were, hands and feet were frostbitten, so he wasn't able to... Um, mm. Kind of used dexterity to help get him to self self down the mountain, and so he he died. But he was able to use that that Sandy Pittman sat phone to talk to his wife one last time. What about he her? Died. What what's what she doing in all this? We'll get there. Um, she survives. By the way, spoiler alert. Of course she does. Um. So, though Hanson and Harris's bodies were never found. They, they, we don't know what happened to them. Ed Vesters, who is a good friend of, a good personal friend of Rob Hall's and a part of that IMAX crew, when they summited on May 23rd, he found his, his friend's body. And so he just sat next to him and cried. But he asked his wife, what do you want to do? Should I bring him down? And his wife said no. Yeah, because that, because that's risky in and of itself. Right. His wife said no, he would want to stay there. But they did bring his wedding band back down to his wife. So that's the that's Rob Hall. Um, Stuart Hutchinson, this is a, another client. Um, he found Yasuko Namba and Beck Weathers, who are both severely frostbitten and hypothermic on the morning of 11 May. So this was the next day after they tried to summit. Mm-hmm. Due to their extremely deteriorated state, Hutchinson and Sherpa Lopsang decided to leave them behind and and just go back to camp four. Namba died of exposure at that time. Yeah, because I guess at that point, like there's just that cruel calculus you have to perform. Is this do you think this person is going to make it even if they get back, knowing like and like, you know, if you bring them back, you may not make it. Yeah, that's that's just the cruel calculus of survival. Yeah. So they decided we're going to leave them there. And then Scott Fisher, who is the Mountain Madness lead, he had found Makalu Gao. And Gao was actually a um, one of the Taiwanese group. So not a part of his own expedition, but he found him in this Taiwanese group. And he stayed with him at the summit, although Fisher himself was suffering from, they're they're thinking high-altitude cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, something, by about 345 on the 10th. 
So he was already in a bad way. Mm. On the 11th, Gao and Fisher were found by one by the rescue crew that had gone back up there. But Fisher had deteriorated so much that they were only able to give him palliative care before an air evacuation actually saved Gao. Three people from the Indo-Tibetan border police also attempted to summit on the 10th of May with no Sherpas. And three of them died. And I'm going to try and pronounce their names. Subadar Sevang Samanla, Lance Nayak Dorje Morup, and Head Constable Sevang Paljor. So the the three of them also were among the dead. I'm curious if, like, to work border patrol in this region. Because obviously, border between Nepal and Tibet, which is part of People's Republic of China, you know, the Nepalese border with India. I wonder if you have to have some degree of mountaineering experience to be, to work border patrol in this section. Or be local to the area because because i feel like you know just dropping a your your run-of-mill border patrol agent you know who maybe has never climbed a mountain before that might be a problem in these areas yeah so i wonder if they they felt like you know we're experienced enough we don't need sherpas i'm not sure what the decision was it's also kind of a macho thing um keep in mind that yeah um largely although not entirely now but Largely, especially in the 80s and 90s, um, Summoning Everest was a boys' club. It was always outnumbered men to women. Yeah. So it could have been sort of a macho thing, too. Like, we're going to do this without Sherpas, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's unfortunately not a whole lot that I know about that aspect of it. But those three made the total of eight people who died um, on Everest during that particular ascent. Um so it's Rob Hall, Doug Hansen, Andrew Harris, Scott Fisher, Yasuko Namba, and then the three Taiwanese, uh, or sorry, the three um, Indo-Tibetan border police folks. That the Taiwanese guy made it made it out alive. That all sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sucks a lot. But I did want to talk about some of the amazing things that happened in terms of people being able to survive. Okay. So Neil Beidelman, who is a guide, helped seven people to safety. He kept going out from Camp 4 and finding people and guiding them back to the camp. Anatoly Bokreev, who is a Kazakhstani, actually risked his life multiple times, and he climbed with no supplemental oxygen. He did not have any oxygen. And keep in mind, so this is like during the evening, during a blizzard. Yes. So... Beidelman's group, I just want to mention really quick, of when one of the groups that he went out to find hmm. couldn't find Camp 4. It was complete whiteout. They couldn't see Camp 4. So they all just huddled together to try and stay warm and just waited out. They were actually only 66 feet away from the cliff fall on the Kangsheng face. Oh. And this is the Kangsheng oh, face. Oh, wow. That would have been bad. So you can see these climbers right here. Yeah. They were right there. So if they had fallen, they they definitely would have died. They had no idea how close they were to the edge. So how many so how many of these people survived encounters with or killed a Yeti? <laughs> None. As far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um okay, so then I want to tell you about the amazing story of Beck Weathers, who I pointed out to you yes. before. Yes. Um 
this handsome devil here with the the tan. Yeah. Okay. So, Beck Weathers. This guy was with Yasuko Namba, one of the people who died, on the morning of 11th of May. Due to this, they left him behind. They thought that they were both in such bad shape that they were not going to make it. He actually regained his ability to walk and just walked all the way down to Camp 4. He, When he was in Camp 4, he got hot tea and supplemental oxygen, and they put him in his tent. And that night, his tent collapsed, and there was a bunch of snow on it. So they were like, dude's dead. What, what are we going to do? So John Krakauer, the journalist, goes into his tent and finds that he's conscious, but he's still in a really bad way. So he was like, hey, this dude's conscious. Let's see if we can find get the rescue team up there. They actually, the rescue team got it, got up there and threw eight separate other people who were also there to climb Everest. They passed him down the mountain to Camp 2, and they did a super, super risky helicopter um, rescue. Oh, yeah, because I imagine, like, any sort of air, hel- uh, yeah, I, I, any sort of, hel- like, helicopter uh, travel in this area is going to be, like, you'd probably have to be a very skilled yes. pilot. And the air is extremely thin up there. Yeah, so, so it's like not, very yeah, super windy. Helicopters are not easy to fly up there. Um, and he actually, it saved his life. This helicopter rescue saved his life. Dude was too tough to die. Yeah. He, he, um, he made a full recovery, but he lost his nose, his right hand, half of his right forearm, and all the fingers on his left hand to frostbite. And this is Mr. Beckweather's. After he came back. I've seen this picture before. Yeah. I, I know I have. So. Yeah. So, handsome devil, Mr. Beckweathers. Um, he did get his nose back. So, that's good. I was going to say, because there. Nose is cartilage, so. Just, just reminded that uh, <laughs> there was a. I'm reminded of this because they're, they're kind of doing their tournament of Byzantine emperors right now to us rank him. And they, uh, <laughs> they talked about Justinian the second. Who had had his nose chopped off? Oh no! And dethroned, but then he fought to get his throne back, and he came back to the throne, and he had a golden nose made, and he just like wore it with like straps over his face, <laughs> so he had like this big golden nose for the rest oh, of his boy. life. <laughs> Beckweathers didn't have to have a golden nose, oh. so that's good. Yeah. It is red, like it's it's looks like he's had some sort of accident, but yeah, I imagine um, it doesn't look great. He he looks fine. Oh yeah, it just looks like he is. He just has like some like the skin rosacea. Yeah, it kind of looks like he has a really bad case of that. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't. He doesn't exactly look like, you know, his nose isn't missing anymore. We'll just say that. You can tell he's been through some stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so aftermath. This has been analyzed from all different sorts of ways mm. because it's highly publicized. It was kind of happening concurrently or just before the Everest filming on the IMAX Everest filming. Mm-hmm. It was also covered by John Krakauer. John Krakauer wrote a book about it. Anatoly Bokriev wrote a book about it. Um, there, there have been actually four separate books written about this exact thing. So it's been analyzed a lot. John Krakauer, Anatoly Bokriev, and Beck Weathers all wrote books about this exact same topic. So there's plenty of analysis that's happened. 
John Krakauer says that Anatoly Bokriev and the others all should have been using constant supplemental oxygen because they weren't thinking clearly when they pressed to the summit and allowed people to stay too long. Both Rob Hall and Scott Fisher should have called it and said, let's go yeah. back. Um, also, Fisher and Hall were friends and had friendly competition. So did mm. that kind of push them to get to the summit? Or was it Krakauer being on the team that made it like summit or nothing for them? Yeah, because you, you want to impress the guy who's there to like report on your exactly story or adventure or whatever because and if you, it, yeah you, it, if you if you don't sum it it's like well you got nothing or you or you look like a failure to the world outside magazine was really big then mm. so either or both of them summiting would have been career launching situations yeah. so they had kind of a vested interest in that so that's why our f rappers for today are either sandy Pittman with her lack of uh, prowess on the mountain and causing the ropes not to be fixed or Rob Hall and Scott Fisher ignoring their own best advice and not allowing hmm. a summit attempt they sh- or or allowing a summit attempt when they shouldn't have. So, so, so what happened to the Sandy woman? She, she lived. She survived. Okay, so she made it up. To, she managed to summit and then made it back. Yeah. Okay. But Rob Hall and Scott Fisher both died. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the original issue with her was being essentially dragged up the mountain. Was this someone who was just like, she seems like someone who wanted to say, oh yeah, I climbed Mount Everest or I summoned Mount Everest, but didn't want to put in the work of actually doing it. Well, I will say that she had been short roped. So conne- connected by via rope to her to the Sherpa. Mm. The Sherpa's name is Lapsang Jangbu Sherpa for five to six hours at that point. So she had been physically connected to another person who was helping haul her up the mountain. How old was she around this time? Um forty one. I think. Yeah, this seems like a person who uh, 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 how do I want to say it? Well, also keep in mind, she started mountaineering when she was 13. She had, she was going to be the first woman to scale the seven summits, which is the highest. Oh, peak okay. On each. So, so she has plenty of experience. Yeah. She summited Akanagua in 1992, Denali in the same year, Vincent Massif in 1993, Mount Elbrus in the same year, Kilimanjaro, same year, Kosciusko in 1994. Okay. And Punkat Jaya in 1995. Okay. So, so Everest so, was the last one for her in 96. And she was going to be, this. she became the second woman, American woman, to scale the seven summits. Okay. So, so, so she wasn't even going to be the first. And she also had already tried to summit Everett twice before her successful ascent in 1996. Hmm. She just hadn't summited yet. Because I'm just trying to figure out, like... Okay, well, this even complicates it further. It's like, so if you did all this previous work, you summoned all these mountains for, why do you need this level of assistance in getting up this mountain? 
Like what? What? Like what? Are you just like was she just not feeling well, or because <sighs> she's like really kind of frustrating me? <laughs> hmm. Hold on, I just need to look at this thing. I think, if I think about it, I would put the blame on the two Mountaineers, uh, the, the guides. Who, what were the, uh, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher. Fisher. Because they should have known better. You could blame Sandy for, like, really, the way it should have worked out, okay, Sandy's, you know, holding everybody up. These two guys, like, all right, well... We're not at the summit at 2 o'clock. We have to turn back. And then you can be like, well, blame that woman. Yeah. Because, well, you know, why couldn't another Sherpa help the other one out? Like, why couldn't just another one of the other... Because there's plenty of Sherpas around. Why couldn't they get another one to help the guy with the with the, with the lines? I think it was too late. I think there was, like, crossed communication wires there. Mm, okay, okay. Um, so I, th- I think that's why okay. they, they didn't have the second person. But yeah, so, so like these two who are purported to be, you know, expert or experienced in this field, I feel like they should have known better because especially in a situation like this, I understand like wanting to impress. I understand wanting to accomplish your task, but when you know life and death is on the line safety has to come first safety always has to come like you know stuff we learn in wood shop in the middle school safety always comes first yeah you know so especially even if what not their own personal safety the safety of you know several other people that they are responsible for they're the leaders of these groups heading up this mountain that could very easily kill them they really should have known better. So I'm going to say the F-Ruppers are those two. Okay. So. That's fair. Um, but I think they both kind of paid for their mistake. Oh, uh, well, they, them and several others yeah. paid for their mistake. But also, all of the folks knew the risk. Um, these yes. these were not people who guaranteed a summit. You know, they, they weren't going to say, like, it, before this, their top priority would be getting people back safely. Mm-hmm. So that's why this is sort of a break of character for mm-hmm. the two of them, and they kind of paid for it. Yeah. Um, I will say briefly the um, the little tiny bit of research I just did on Sandy Pittman, um, now Sandy Hill, uh, is that she thinks that the reporting has kind of made her out to be a bad guy because she's rich, um, because she had actually funded and helped gain corporate sponsorships for other summit attempts a lot prior well, to I mean, this. Well, rich people are bad guys by default. Yeah. So. But it's it's easy to pin it on her because yeah. she's not the only person who's ever been short roped to the summit of Everest. I also wonder how much of that is, again, like, kind of like you alluded to, very macho boys culture at this time. Right. Oh, well, let's blame the woman. Yeah. And that's a very it's a popular thing to do throughout history. <laughs> yeah. So. So. Uh, with all of this, 
there have been some good things, some yeah. some good things in the aftermath. Climbing on Everest now, there is a lot more priority that's putting safety of the group ahead of safety of the individual. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that the leader is the be-all, end-all person to tell you exactly what's going to happen. And if you if you have that drop-dead time and you pass it, then you're going back. So yeah. it's not... And there, there has, there's been a little bit more flexibility in summit attempts. So, you know, if you can't make it on one day, if you have a clear shot in the next couple of days, then you just wait it out. Um, it's a, it's safe to stay at a certain level for mm-hmm. a long period of time. You just can't stay like at 29,000 feet for a long period of time. So. Yeah. Go up there, get your picture, come back down. <laughs> right. Um, plans have to be more closely followed. So that kind of is the whole summit yeah. thing. But there are still a few things that definitely need improvement. Sherpas still have way too much weight on their shoulders to do the more dangerous tasks. And it's kind of, we kind of lean on them too much and put them into a a lot of dangerous situations. Um, Inexperienced climbers still have access to Summit, um, which like for better or for worse, you know, like how, how experienced does one person need to be in order to do it? Considering Hillary was not a super experienced mountaineer when he climbed Everest with with very little help. I feel like that has almost given a false sense of, I can do this to people who probably really shouldn't be doing it. And I feel like they're just, I I know, again with the commercialization of it, all these companies are just seeing the dollar signs of it. There needs to be a, some sort of qualification to do it at this point because so many people want to do it now that that will put at least a filter like you'll filter out some people like you'll get some people who's like well i don't want to climb you know this mountain this mountain this mountain just to climb this mountain right or or other people who maybe just like don't have the time to do all that or, or i mean frankly the money to do all that it would reduce the number of people coming in which I know, of course, is a problem for these companies. They're not going to do it because, again, dollar signs. It's like maybe like the Nepalese or Indian governments can maybe put a restriction on it. But again, it's probably mountaineering tourism is probably a large chunk of Nepal's economy. It definitely is. So, it, yeah, it's just like it, it, it's very unfortunate because like there there needs to be. I feel like you know, like you to climb Everest, you have to have climbed this mountain or cl- done this many summits at this height, done at least one at this height, you know, uh, prove that you will follow, like maybe the reputation thing, like prove like you will listen to the person in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've been a problem on all your previous expeditions to other mountains, okay, well, no, you're not going to climb Everest. Sorry. Yeah. You're too big of an a hole. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's kind of just one of those things. It's like there needs to be a restriction. Sure. Yeah. <sighs> so that is the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. Um, there is so much more to be read about this. I just briefly summarized it. Mm. But my sources for the episode were John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, a personal account of the Mount Everest disaster published in 1997. Uh, also in 97, uh, The Climb, Tragic Ambitions on Everest by Anatoly Bokriev. Um, 2000's Left for Dead, My Journey Home from Everest by Beck Weathers. Um, Mapping Everest, which is a TV documentary I watched uh, from BBC. 
Um, that was about the history mm. of Everest. Um, 2012's uh, The Mammoth Book of How It Happened, Everest by John E. Lewis, and a Dateline special called Mountain Without Mercy, <laughs> and it aired in 1996. It's very uh, good. So yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my episode. Great job. Yeah, thanks. I, yeah, I did not know any of that. Cool. Uh, just, I just probably, I probably knew as much like uh, as your lay person. Just, oh. I'm like, oh, Everest is dangerous. People have died on it. That's about it. Uh, let me leave you with a quote because I forgot. Mm. <laughs> uh, this is from Into Thin Air. Walter Mitty's with Everest dreams need to bear in mind that when things go wrong up in the death zone, and sooner or later they always do, the strongest guides in the world may be powerless to save a client's life. Indeed, as the events of 1996 demonstrated, the strongest guides in the world are sometimes powerless to save even their own lives. Four of my teammates died, not so much because Rob Hall's systems were faulty. Indeed, nobody's were better, but because on Everest, it is the nature of systems to break down with a vengeance. What are we going to talk about next time? Our final effort upper. We're, of course, in our final episode, breaking... One of our cardinal rules, just by a wee bit, not by much, because this actually took place in 2004. Well, so just under our 20 year rule. But it's it's fine. Okay. Uh, something we were alive for. Something I watched happen live oh boy. on television with my stepdad. Oh, no. Just mouths agape. <laughs> we were talking about the infamous brawl. Between the Detroit Pistons and the Indiana Pacers, the malice at the palace. All right. I know you've been waiting waiting to do another sports episode. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> I'm excited. Please be sure to check out our other projects, including Attack of the Final Girls, a horror movie podcast with my lovely co-host, Juliet. Imperfect Men, yet another Rexypod writing all the founding fathers from Andrew Adams to George Wythe. The Drunken Pawn, a YouTube channel where we play board games and drink craft beer. Hard Ticket to Sedaris, a movie podcast covering the action films of the late Andy Sedaris. For all of our projects, visit our Twitter at AOP Pod Network. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is We Effed Up. Up.